Today's scripture reading is from Matthew 27, so if you'd like to open your Bibles. Starting in verse 27. Then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the praetorium and gathered the whole garrison around him, and they stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him. When they had twisted the crown of thorns, they put it on his head and a reed in his right hand, and they bowed the knee before him and mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews. Then they had spat on him and took the reed and struck him on the head. And when they had mocked him, they took the robe off him, put his own clothes on him, and they led him away to be crucified. Now as they came out, they found a man of Cyrene, Simon by name. Him they compelled to bear his cross. And when they had come to the place called Golgotha, that is to say, place of the skull, they gave him sour wine mingled with gall to drink. But when he had tasted it, he would not drink. Then they crucified him and divided his garments, casting lots, that it might be fulfilled which was pro- spoken by the prophets. They divided my garments and among them, among them, and for, and for my clothing they cast lots. Sitting down, they kept watch over him, and they put over his head the accusation written against him, This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. Then two robbers were crucified with him, one on the right and one on the left. And those who passed by blasphemed him, wagging their heads and saying, You who destroyed the temple and built it in three days, save yourself. If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. Likewise, the chief priest, also mocking with the scribes and elders, said, He saved others, himself he cannot save. If he is the King of Israel, let him come down from there, the cross, and we will believe him. He trusted in God, let him deliver him now, if he will have him. For he said, I am the Son of God. Even the robbers who were crucified with him reviled him with the same thing. We're going to be looking at this passage today and next Sunday. Back in the late 1800s, a cleric from the Church of England by the name of Frederick Farrar wrote a book entitled The Life of Christ. And in that book, there's a section that describes death by crucifixion. I quote, a death by crucifixion seems to include all that pain and death can have of the horrible and ghastly. Dizziness, cramp, thirst, starvation, sleeplessness, traumatic fever, tetanus, shame, publicity of shame, long continuance of torment, horror of anticipation, mortification of untended wounds, all intensified just up to the point at which they can be endured at all, but all stopping just short of the point which would give to the sufferer the relief of unconsciousness. The unnatural position made every uh, movement painful. The lacerated veins and crushed tendons throbbed with incessant anguish. The wombs inflamed by exposure gradually gangrened. The arteries, especially at the head and stomach, became swollen and oppressed with surcharged blood. And while each variety of misery went on gradually increasing, there was added to them the intolerable pang of a burning and raging thirst. And all these physical complications caused an internal excitement and anxiety which made the prospect of death itself, of death the unknown enemy at whose approach man usually shudders most, bear the aspect of a delicious and exquisite release. Reading that description, it's very clear that in crucifying someone, no one was really concerned with a quick and painless death, 
or the preservation of, of any kind of human digni- dignity. It was actually quite the contrary. Crucifiers sought an agonizing torture of complete humiliation that goes beyond any other design of death that man has ever invented. And such was a torture that our Lord Jesus Christ endured for us. The crucifixion of Christ, we know, is the high point of redemptive history. Everything was pointing to the cross. It's a focal point of God's purpose of salvation. Everything culminates at the cross where the Lord bears the sins of the world and therefore provides salvation to all who believe. The cross, then, is also the culmination of the plan of God. And it demonstrates the grace and the mercy and the goodness and the kindness and the love of God that no other event in history ever has. The single greatest manifestation of God's love and grace is seen at the cross. And if we were studying the Gospel of John right now, that's the focus that we would find. Because for the most part, that's the intention of the Gospel of John. And and as John writes about the cross, it's always from the viewpoint of God. And it gives a sense of awe, of of wonder, of, of God's glory and the grace and love at the death of Christ. But that's not Matthew's purpose. Matthew approaches the cross from from the very opposite viewpoint. Matthew describes the crucifixion not from the standpoint of the goodness of God, but from the standpoint of the wickedness of men. That's the title of the message, The Wickedness of the Crucifixion. You see, the focus of Matthew is on how evil mankind is and how much the death of Jesus Christ demonstrates the wickedness of the human heart And I would say that just as the death of Jesus Christ on the one hand is the single greatest revelation of the love and grace of God, on the opposite extreme, on the other hand, it's the single greatest revelation of the defilement and wickedness of the human heart. So we have two actually opposite truths revealed in the extreme in this one event. And Peter in Acts chapter 2 Puts them to captures both truths when, when preaching at, the, at Pentecost, where he says, God has ordained this. We've looked at that a number of times. But you, talking to the Jews that, have, that are there, but by your wicked hands have brought this to pass. This is kind of the epitome of the truth that we find in Jeremiah 17 9, where it says, The heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure. Who can understand it? So what we see in this moment is a fulfillment of the plan of a gracious God, and on the other hand, the supreme effort of wickedness. And as we go through our text, we'll we'll find that wickedness did not just kill Jesus. That, That wasn't enough. No, during the whole time that he was dying, it had to torment him as well. It wasn't enough to just let Jesus die in this disgraceful and unbelievably painful death on the cross. But during that whole process, it mocked and scorned and reproached him. You see, his enemies were so filled with wickedness that even his death seemed to be a disappointment to them. And as Matthew is presenting the wickedness of man at the scene of the cross here in the verses that we read this morning... We find four groups of the wicked around that cross. 
And we want to look at those four, the ignorant wicked, the knowing wicked, the fickle wicked, and the religious wicked. This morning we want to look at the ignorant wicked, and they are illustrated by the callous soldiers. Verse 27 starts out by saying, Then the governor's soldiers took Jesus into the praetorium and gathered the whole company of soldiers around him. Now the governor, of course, is Pilate, and we've looked at him previously. He had already opted to act unjustly because of his fear of the people. Uh, And he acted that way to protect his job, his reputation, and and probably his own life. But he feels forced to do things to Jesus he knows that justice does not require. But rather than releasing Jesus, as he should have a number of times, as an innocent man that he was, he has him scourged, he has him mocked, he has him beaten, and then brings him back out to the people, perhaps to show them that this helpless weak, pathetic man was no threat to either Rome or to Israel. And maybe, just maybe it would satisfy the Jews enough that that, uh, maybe they would stop just short of actually crucifying him. So as our passage begins, Jesus has already endured the scourging mentioned in verse 26. He's been tied to a post by his hands, uh, more than likely his feet suspended off the ground, so so he is taught. Two Roman soldiers on each side with wooden handles in their hands, with with leather attached, and at the end of the leather uh, there would be bits of rocks and bone and sharp metal pieces. And they would begin whipping the body of of, of Jesus, slicing through the soft tissue and and, uh, with each strike, which would cause extensive bleeding. It would get to the point where even his inner parts were made visible. Following that horrible scourging, and before the crucifixion, verse 27 that we read says, Then the governor's soldiers took Jesus into the praetorium and gathered the whole company of soldiers around him. Now the company of soldiers, we've seen them before. The word is spira, the group of 600. Remember, it's the same number, the same word used of the soldiers that went to the Garden of Gethsemane when they arrested Jesus. The spira, 600 of them. And it's more than likely, it's probably this same group of soldiers because it just happened the night before. Now it's interesting to note that Rome, for the most part, conscripted soldiers out of countries that they had occupied. And often there in the land of Israel, they had brought in soldiers that, uh, that had been taken from Syria. So most of these soldiers uh, in this spira were probably men from Syria. They weren't from Jerusalem, weren't raised in Israel, didn't know anything about religious practices, perhaps didn't even know Adam from, excuse me, Jesus from Adam. He was just a strange, really a strange prisoner to them. I mean, they they didn't often get prisoners who claimed to be king as he was being accused of, especially one who looked so pathetic and weak as this man that was before them. So what they did, they did in ignorance. and Therefore, represent the ignorant wicked who are seen around that cross. By the time Jesus is handed over to them, he's a mess. His face has been slapped repeatedly. He's been punched until it's swollen and bruised. He's been spit on, probably a spit running down his face. His body's now sliced up, and he's bleeding profusely from his shoulders down. These soldiers know that he's supposedly supposed to be a king because the people are screaming about his claim to be king. 
They know that they, the people want him dead. You know, there must be a reason for it, right? That theirs is not to question. They see him as a pathetic fake and fraud. Maybe, maybe he's not there all mentally. I mean, he's, he's claiming to be king, right? He doesn't say anything in his own defense. They're cold, they're indifferent, they're ignorant. And this pathetic man in front of them is nothing more than the butt of their jokes. Already bleeding from the scourging which opened up his flesh, blood flowing out all over his body, agony in every nerve, his whole body quivering in torturous pain, he becomes the object of the soldier's ridicule, and they all gather around him and begin their little game. The first thing they did was to strip him. The act of humiliation. Now remember, most of these soldiers are Syrian men that they hated the Jews. There's always been a hatred there. So they loved doing this. I mean, this is a Jew, right? And any way they could humiliate and mock them would be thoroughly enjoyable for them. They didn't know him. They didn't care about him. No concern for him, even as a fellow human being. He was just a Jew, after all, whom Pilate had told them to scourge. So they, bent, they were bent on only, uh, only on fun at his expense to increase his agony, which is expressed in the wickedness of the human heart and is the epitome of the wickedness that is ignorant. You know, they're really reflecting their father, the devil, are they not? Whom Peter describes as a roaring lion seeking whom he can devour. Yet totally oblivious, ignorant even to the fact that it is the devil that is pushing and directing them. Now when Jesus was scourged, verse 28 says, they stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him. That, of course, was intended to represent royal purple robe, right? To mock him as a king. That was the accusation. But you know what's fascinating Even in the putting on of this purple or scarlet robe, John describes it as scarlet, this act points back to Isaiah chapter 1, verse 18, where the prophet writes, though our sins are as what? Are as scarlet. And later on in Isaiah 53, 6, he tells us, the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all, those scarlet sins. So rather than being, being mocked as the king that they were trying to do, they in their ignorance were symbolizing the laying of our scarlet sins on Jesus. The Apostle Paul describes it like this in 2 Corinthians 5.21, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us. So in him we might become the righteousness of God. Then in verse 29 it says, and then then twisted together a crown of thorns and set it on his head. This was intended to be a cheap and painful imitation of the royal wreath that is seen on uh, the the image on on all the coins of Tiberius Caesar. But listen, though they were mocking him as a king, in God's economy... This represented something far more significant, and they didn't even know it. Another mark of their ignorance. Do you remember what the thorns actually represented here? 
Back in Genesis, Genesis chapter 3, verse 18, after the sin of Adam and Eve, it tells us that God curses the ground. And what's the first thing that happens? God says, the ground, it will produce what? Thorns and thistles for you. A direct consequence of the curse of sin. So just as a scarlet robe was symbolic of his bearing our sin, I see the crown of thorns um, that, he's, that he is wearing um, as, as a symbol of his bearing the curse of the world. Because on the cross, Jesus not only took away our sin, but he will remove the curse from the whole earth. Remember Paul writes in Romans chapter 8, For the creation waits in eager expectation. The creation that Jesus Christ created, that He was the one that made. This creation waits in eager expectation for what? To be liberated from its bondage, from the curse back in Genesis chapter 3. To be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. The same freedom and glory that we can receive and experience now, the earth is waiting for that. They can't wait for that to happen for them. And it will because it's promised. So the ignorance of these soldiers from the wickedness of their hearts, rather than mocking Him as King, were in actuality presenting Jesus as a symbol, bearing the sins of the world as scarlet and the curse of the earth as thorns. But in real time, in their eyes, this makes Jesus look ridiculous. He's a joke. He's bloody from head to foot. His face is now unrecognizable. He's hardly human. He's a sense of ugliness. It's a scene of ugliness, and this may be the point which uh, Isaiah is actually referring to when he said that Jesus, in, in Jesus there is no beauty that we should desire Him. But they're not through yet. Verse 29 goes on to say that they put a staff in his hand. They actually put a kalamos in his right hand. A kalamos is a staff made of a flimsy reed from the waterside. And they continued his mockery in verse 29. Then they knelt in front of him and mocked him. Hail, King of the Jews, they said. It was all just mockery, sarcasm, ridicule, and scorn. But isn't it interesting how they actually, uh, that, that actually depicts what Paul says in Philippians chapter 2, that one day, at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow, every tongue confess, or acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord, including those that were on their knees mocking Jesus that day. And so they bow the knee. All these great, this great band of ignorant, wicked Roman soldiers, they all bow the knee. And as they rise from the knee, verse 30, uh, verse 30 says, they spit on him. They spit on him. The ultimate human indignity to spit on someone. The Jews had done it back in chapter 26 as we went through the Jewish trial, mockery of a trial. And now the Romans are doing it as well. It seems that the whole world is gathered to spit on the Son of God. And the whole world today continues to spit on Him, to mock Him, and many out of ignorance. If they only knew who they were spitting on. 
If they only knew who they were mocking. If they only had known who it was upon whom they had placed that crown of thorns and that scarlet robe. If they had any idea. We can imagine what hell would be like today for those people. Those who spit on Jesus. Can you imagine what must be going through their minds as they remember that, that one day when everything just seemed to be a big joke. This is fun. This is all a game. And it says they took that staff, that, that uh, reed, and struck him on the head again and again. Why'd they do that? I don't think it was necessary to crush the thorns deeper on his brow, but it probably happened. But they did it mainly to show what a joke his authority was, because that, that reed in his right hand was a mar- mark of authority. What kind of a king are you? We can rip the scepter right out of your hand and beat you on the head with it. Your sovereignty, sovereignty and your kingship is a joke. And John adds that they kept punching him as well. A brutal, brutal time of amusement for them. And as, as he endures it all, he says nothing. He offers no resistance. He knew it was all going to happen. Remember back in Matthew 20, verses 18 and 19, where he tells the disciples, we're going up to Jerusalem. This is when they're on their way to Jerusalem, the final time. And the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the teachers of the law. That took place. They will condemn him to death. That took place. We'll hand him over to the Gentiles. That took place, or the Romans, to be mocked and flogged and crucified. Jesus was saying this is all going to happen. He knew. And on the third day, he'll be raised again. He was right on schedule. And he silently endured it all. The humiliation, the agony, the pain beyond belief. Then the Gospel of John fills in the next moment in chapter 19 where Pilate then brings Jesus out to the Jews to present him to them. And it says in verse 5, when Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe, Pilate said to them, here's the man. Here is the man. As if to say, look, no king here, just a man. He's been punished enough. But Then verse 6 says, as soon as the chief priests and their officials saw him, they shouted, crucify, crucify. Finally, Pilate says, fine, whatever. You take him and crucify him, Pilate said. As for me, once again, listen, as for me, I find no basis of a charge against him. He's innocent. And Matthew says, after they had mocked him, they took off the robe and put his own clothes on him. Then they led him away to crucify him. The most horrible way to die. This was a method of execution the Romans had used extensively. From what we can glean from the time of Christ and around the era of the Roman occupation there in Israel, the Romans crucified at least 30,000 Jews and usually did it along the highways so people could see what the results were if anybody went against the Roman law. 
And so here they were just, just going, going to lead another victim to crucifixion. That was par for the course. And verse 32 says, as they were going out. Now here Matthew is referring to the fact that they were going outside the city. Because an execution was always done outside the walls. It was not allowed to be done within the city limits. This was actually part of a Le- the Levitical law from the Old Testament. And that's why Hebrews chapter 13 tells us, "...the high priest carries the blood of animals into the most holy place as a sin offering, but the bodies are burned outside the camp." So the writer of Hebrews says, "...Jesus also suffered outside the city gate." to make the people holy through his own blood. Now, before we go outside the city with Matthew here, there's an event that occurs as he was walking the Via Dolorosa, the way of suffering, before he gets to the city gate. And John tells us about that in chapter 9. So the soldiers took charge of Jesus. Carrying his own cross, he went out. Now, there's nothing in Scripture to suggest that he carried only part of the cross. You, know, you have these depictions of just the crossbar going on, on his soldiers. The crosses would probably already have been put together ahead of time. And the weight of a cross like that would probably be over 200 pounds. An absolutely inconceivable weight on someone in his particular situation. Carrying his own cross, he went out. And the prisoner would be surrounded by what they call a Quaternion. It's four soldiers in the formation of a square with Jesus in the middle as they head through the streets uh, with other soldiers in front of them, other soldiers behind them as they're trying to make a way through the crowd. And at Passover time, the hundreds of thousands of people were jammed into that city. And you can imagine the scene, another way to, of making a spectacle out of Jesus. And hanging around the prisoner's neck or somebody out in front holding a sign up would be written the, the crime for which they were being punished. And this again was to warn everyone who were there that this is the consequence of that crime. So the procession moves through the streets and, and uh, this is where we hear Jesus' final message. His final message to a group of people. Luke chapter 23 tells us that as he was walking in that procession, quote, a large number of people followed him, including women who mourned and wailed for him. And Jesus turned to them and said, and here's, here's his message, daughters of Zion, do not weep for me. Weep for yourselves and for your children, for the time will come when you will say, blessed are the child, childless women the wombs that never bore and the breasts that never nursed. What a horrible thing to say. In their minds, it's always been a curse to be childless. A woman could think of nothing worse. Could, could, uh, could, how could this ever be a blessing? In fact, Jesus went on to say in verse 30, Then they will say to the mountains, Fall on us, and to the hills, cover us. He's telling them that that you're going to be experiencing such terrifying judgment that you'll wish you had no children to be slaughtered in front of your own eyes. Then he gives a little proverb in verse 31, For if people do these things when the tree is green, what will happen when it is dry? What does that mean? He's saying that he is the green tree. 
and the people of Jerusalem are the dry tree. If the Romans would do this to him who is innocent, what would they do to the Jews who are guilty? Nobody burns green trees. They're difficult to burn. They cause a lot of smoke. No one wants that in their home. They burn dry trees because it burns easily and is virtually smokeless. Boy Scouts 101. What he's saying is that if the Romans will burn a green tree, that is an innocent one, one who is not fit to be burned, what will they do to you who are guilty? time of your judgment comes, he's saying, you watch and see what they'll do to you. And we know he's referring to the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD. Jesus' last message to them on the way to his cross was a message of coming judgment. And it was coming quickly within the lifetime of many of the people that were there on that path heading out of the city. The Holocaust of 70 AD from which the land of Israel is still trying to recover And I would add that Jesus was also referring to the coming of the Antichrist and the Great Tribulation. We looked at that back in Matthew chapter 24 where he says, Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. How dreadful it will be in those days for who? For pregnant women and nursing mothers. For then there will be great distress unequaled from the beginning of the world until now and never to be equaled again. Prophecies almost always had an immediate um, uh, fulfillment and a future fulfillment. And this took place on the road within the city limits as they were heading out. And so in verse 32 here in Matthew, we find then that they, they came out of the city, probably through the Damascus Gate uh, in the northern part of the city. And when they had just come out of the city, it was apparent that Jesus, his his blood flowing, uh, the agony beyond belief, both physically and emotionally, no sleep, the betrayal of his disciples, the defection of his uh, uh, disciples, the trials, the injustices, the beatings, the scourging, his strength totally sapped, now unable to continue carrying the 200 pounds of wood. We read, they met a man from Cyrene named Simon. And they forced him to carry the cross. Now this is interesting. I found this fascinating. What do we know about the man Simon? Not a great deal. He was from Cyrene, uh, which is a Greek settlement in the northern part of Libya in North Africa. There were many Jews in Cyrene, and Simon, just by his name, was probably a Jew. Simon was a Jewish name. And he was in Jerusalem because it was Passover, like everybody else was there. Because we do know from the book of Acts that there was, in fact, a a Jewish synagogue of four Cyrenians there in Jerusalem. So the people from Cyrene were there and would be able to worship as well. Mark chapter 15 tells us in verse 21 that Simon was basically minding his own business, not even following the procession. He wasn't even part of that procession. In fact, it says, and I quote, A certain man from Cyrene, Simon, the father of Alexander and Rufus, was passing by on his way in from the country. And they forced him to carry the cross. So the Romans grab him. He's just coming, minding his own business, coming back into the city. And they force him to carry the cross because no Roman is certainly going to carry the cross of, of a Jew. Now, 
Mark adds an interesting description here in that verse we just read of, of Simon. He says that he was the father of Alexander and Rufus. Who cares, right? I mean, why, why in the world does he say that? But my question was, why would the Holy Spirit, through Mark, want that tidbit of information there? Ever ask yourselves that question? Mark most likely wrote his gospel from Rome. And the first readers may well have been Roman Christians. And Alexander and Rufus may well have been two of the believers that knew, that they knew, that the church knew. And so he simply identifies Simon as the father of two people who they knew, Alexander and Rufus. And then we find in Romans chapter 16, verse 13, where Paul, writing to the Romans, say, Greet Rufus. <laughs> Isn't that interesting? Greet Rufus. Chosen in the Lord and his mother, who has been a mother to me too. Which would mean that Simon of Cyrene's wife would have become very close to Paul and treated him as a mother would. Isn't that interesting? And if this is the same man, which seems very likely to me, as he was passing by, by happen chance, was forced to carry the cross of Jesus, and through that experience, I believe, came to faith in Jesus Christ. Raised two sons who became strong pillars in the early church there in Rome, and Simon's wife <laughs> becoming like a mother to the Apostle Paul. Fascinating. So what started out as an enforced act became the means of his salvation. Folks, we don't always understand what God is doing in the moment. Why he allows certain things, sometimes horrible things, to happen. But he always has a plan. Sometimes we, we can look back and understand it. Ah, oh, I get it now. Sometimes we can't. But we need to always trust Him. Then verse 33 tells us, They came to a place called Golgotha, which means the place of the skull. Now Luke 23, 33 just says, When they came to the place called the skull. The Greek word is cranion, from which we get cranium. It was called that because that's how it was shaped, and it looks like that today. And that's probably where Jesus was crucified. Probably not so much on top of it, but right along the road so everyone walking by would see. And so when they came to Golgotha, the place of a skull, they began the procedure. And verse 34 says, they were, There they offered Jesus wine to drink mixed with gall, but after tasting it, he refused to drink it. Now gall just refers to something bitter. Mark clarifies it by saying that uh, they mix the wine with myrrh, which is a gum resin extracted from different types of, of small thorn trees. Isn't that interesting? The thorns come back again here. Apparently, myrrh mixed with wine was common across the ancient uh, cultures for general pleasure, which means make you a little bit high, and or it was used as an analgesic, like a medication that reduces or eliminates pain. But Matthew goes on to say, after tasting it, he refused to drink it. Why would he do that? 
Well, I think it goes back to what he himself said in John chapter 18, verse 11, when he told Peter to put away the sword in the garden. You remember that? And he asked Peter, shall I not drink the cup the Father has given me? He wasn't going to drink this concoction because it wasn't, because he wasn't going to have any of his senses dulled. He was going to the cross to endure the full pain of everything that we deserve. It's fascinating to see what Matthew does here at this moment in, in the passage. All the events this past week, which have been described in detail uh, there in Jerusalem, the intrigue of the disciples and all that was going on with the disciples, and the unjust and the illegal events of the religious, and then the political trials, is all building and it's building and it's building to a crescendo. And then Matthew writes in verse 35, when they had crucified him, they divided up his clothes by casting lots. Wait, what? Matthew doesn't actually even talk about the crucifixion itself. He builds, he builds up to it, skips the crucifixion, and says, after it was over, they divided his clothes. How is that possible? The most gruesome, the most painful, the most torturous manner of death, and he skips it? I mean, there's no dramatics, no fanfare, no hammer in this hand, hammer in this hand, hammer in the, in the feet, no, no crying out, no adjectives, no descriptive words, no nothing, no cries of pain. doesn't say a thing when they had crucified him. Matthew only refers to the crucifixion almost offhandedly as a way to describe the focus on the ones who parted his garments. Why? Because again, the issue for Matthew is the wickedness and the coldness of man. The Bible is not preoccupied about the physical events of the cross. It's preoccupied by the wickedness of men because that's why Jesus died. Well, what about the other Gospels? Surely there's some, some explanation. We've, we've heard about all the kind of things, that uh, horrible stuff that goes on in, in the crucifixion. Um, how about John? I mean, John, he's got a lot of stuff about the, the, the Passion Week and all that takes place there. But even in John chapter 19, verse 23, I quote, When the soldiers crucified Jesus, they took his clothes, dividing them. That's it. You see, that wasn't the point. Matthew was describing the ignorant wickedness of those soldiers. And so all Matthew says is when they had crucified, they divided up his clothes by casting lots. Apparently that was a thing. Interestingly, this is a direct fulfillment of Psalm chapter 22, verse 18. They divide my clothes among them and cast lots for my garment. But Matthew doesn't even refer to that. All he wants us to see is they're so indifferent in their ignorance that they gambled for everything they could. They could have cared less about Jesus. Then verse 36, And sitting down, they kept watch over him. Why? It was their job. They were told to. That's all. They have to make sure that no one's going to try to come and, and rescue him. And then the final note in verse 37, above his head they placed the written charge against him, this is Jesus, the King of the Jews. Boy, the Jews didn't like that one. 
Over in John 19, it says the chief priest of the Jews protested to Pilate, do not write the king of the Jews, but that this man claimed to be the king of the Jews. They wanted no part of Jesus as their king. To this day, they still want no part of Jesus being their king. Once again, God used a pagan man to proclaim the truth. Pilate tacked a sign above his name for all the world to see. This is Jesus, King of the Jews. This actually points to Revelation chapter 19, verse 16, when Jesus returns in power and might and glory on his robe, it says, and on his thigh he has his name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. And as the apostle wrote, every tongue will acknowledge that Jesus Christ is king. So in their ignorance, in mockery and disdain, the soldiers placed that truthful sign over his head. You know, the world is still full of people like that, is it not? It's full of people who just laugh at Jesus. The whole thing just seems really silly. It's a joke. It's ridiculous. It's a crutch that Christians use. And they are so ignorant in the true sense of that word. The world is full of ignorant people who are callous toward Jesus Christ. They don't know who they're talking about. They don't know who they have on their hands. And unless they wake up, they're going to spend eternity in the same place where most of those soldiers are today. But there is hope. There is wonderful hope. Let me jump to verse 54 as we close here to show you a beautiful thing that happens Matthew says, When the centurion and those with him were guarding Jesus saw the earthquake and all that had happened, they were terrified and exclaimed, Surely he was the Son of God. They all recognized it. But recognizing it doesn't always do it. But in Luke chapter 23, verse 47, he pinpoints the centurion He says, the centurion, seeing what had happened, praised God and said, surely this was a righteous man. I don't think we have to stretch our imagination too far to realize that out of that group of soldiers that day, there was at least one, the centurion, who came to true faith in Jesus Christ. I say that to say this, as Jesus was dying on the cross, put there by the ignorantly wicked men, at the same time he offered those very same men the salvation that he was purchasing for them. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. The amazing grace of God. It's never too late. Ignorance is not an excuse. We hear that in our, in our own court systems, don't we? Ignorance is not an excuse. But if we have been part of that mockery of Jesus, the silliness that we think of Jesus, it's not too late, too late for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Jesus Christ, I think about your sacrifice 
You became nothing, poured out to death. Many times I've wondered at your gift of life. And I'm in that place once again. Once again, I look upon the cross where you died. I'm humbled by your mercy. And I'm broken inside. Once again, I thank you. Once again, I pour out my life. Father, this morning, thank you for the cross. Thank you for your love. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for your forgiveness. Oh, Father, you even forgave those ignorant, wicked men. And at least one of them, I believe, (laughs) believed you were the Son of God. You were righteous, and they praised God. And I believe that he is rejoicing in heaven right now. And Father, if there is one this morning, whether it's here within the church building, whether it's listening on Facebook, who have ignored Christ and who have just thought it's, it's just a bunch of silly stuff and, and are, are, are virtually ignorant of who Christ really is, the Son of God, the righteous Son of God, the, the, the pure Lamb of God. Father, I pray that your Holy Spirit would speak right now. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Father, we praise you. Do a new work, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.